Welcome to the State of Generative AI Law, part of a digital Hollywood special conference looking at artificial intelligence, ethics, and the law. I'm Christopher Keneally, host of the Velocity of Content podcast from Copyright Clearance Center. The Constitution of the United States outlines the powers and duties of Congress in Article 1. Section 8 enumerates specific responsibilities to borrow money and to coin money, to establish post offices, and to declare war. Congress is also given authority to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And ever since 1787, copyright has raced to keep up with innovation and change. And while the U.S. Congress still holds the power to legislate on copyright, the last update of the Copyright Act went into force in 1978, 48, 45 years ago, and the last major legislation, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, was passed in 1998, 25 years ago. In the meantime, the evolution of copyright law has been left not to elected representatives to shape, but to appointed judges with fascinating, sometimes contradictory results. And so it is with great interest that the AI training data suits now make their way through the courts. Last month, most notably, the Authors Guild, John Grisham, Jody Picold, David Balducci and George R.R. R. Martin, along with 13 other authors, filed a class action suit against OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT, for copyright infringements of their works of fiction on behalf of a class of such fiction writers. Our discussion today will consider not only the copyright in, uh, questions involved in such a case, but also the implications across all creative industries when AI systems use copyright-protected content in developing so-called generative AI solutions. I'm joined by a distinguished panel, and I want to welcome them. Matthew Asbell is a principal with Offit Kerman in New York City. Welcome, Matt. Thanks a lot for having me. James Samataro is a partner and co-chair of the Music Group and Media and Entertainment Litigation Practice at Prior Cashman in Miami. Welcome, James. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. Pamela Samson is co-director of the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology at Berkeley University. Welcome, Pam. And Scott Shoulder is partner of Cowan Debates, Abrahams, and Shepard in New York City. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, we're happy you can join us. Happy all of you can be here with us. And Scott, we want to start with you because the case that I refer to, the Authors Guild class action suit, which was brought just recently, is one that you are a very big part of. I'd like you to tell us about that complaint and and set out for us uh, what the uh, what it is the Authors Guild is is is, is pointing to? Uh, well, um, and just to be clear, it's uh, the Authors Guild uh, among among many other authors. Uh, this is a, a class uh, a class action on behalf of um, uh, defined classes in the complaint, uh, fiction writers uh, w within certain parameters. Um, really, this is not um, it, it's not terribly different from some of the other complaints out there uh, in that. Uh, one of the major concerns of the authors uh, and the Authors Guild is with respect to the the mass copying uh, and use of their works in in AI training uh, data sets. Uh, in our case, particularly with respect to ChatGPT, um, some of the other cases go into other aspects of of the technology. Um, we're we're a, a bit more focused on uh, on this training issue. Um, Obviously, the issues are are nuanced, and uh, I will uh, oftentimes throughout this this uh, talk refer you to the complaint. 
uh, because there are certain things that I can't really get into, uh, either strategically or from, from a legal perspective. Um, you know, output is is relevant in some ways, uh, but uh, our, our focus here really is on the mass copying uh, and uh, particularly uh, of, of fiction works and uh, as represented by these these authors in the Authors Guild on behalf of a class of similarly situated people. And, and uh, what you point out, of course, that it is on behalf of fiction authors. And it's an important point to make for this audience that um Works of fiction are what are what what is so called rich copyright, thick copyright. So, can we talk generally about some of the differences here and, and why fiction might make the strongest case of all with regards to these uh, uh, types of uses and, and and the training sets? Well, in, in terms of I, I, I again going to hedge a little bit in terms of getting into the strategy and 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 differentiating different types of works, but 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 I agree with you uh, on the general principle that. Um, you were talking about highly creative works. Again, this is not to say that other works are not creative, um, you know, including nonfiction and other other types of writing. Um, but, uh, you know, we are talking about um, dense works that came f- directly from the minds of the creators. Uh, and, you know, these are worlds that uh, the authors created from their own imaginations, um, characters, uh, you know, kind of multi-layered, deep characters and complex plots um, this is the type of uh, dense uh, human-generated creativity that uh, you know is is the type of material that an LLM needs in order to be effective uh, and commercially viable. And Scott, understanding the limitations you're under in speaking about the particular case, I want to ask you sort of generally about the notion that I raised in my introduction, which is the relationship of copyright and technology and the game of catch up that copyright always seems to be playing here. And 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 the further uh, complication, which is that Congress is. has shown no taste for acting and public has no time to act on issues of copyright, which leaves things to the courts to decide. That's right. Um, and that's that's always been the case. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in my cynical worldview, probably always will be the case, uh, particularly with the Congress that we have now and have had for, you know, the last uh, couple of terms. Um, yeah, it, it's it's a game of catch up. It's often trying to fit. I won't say necessarily uh, round pegs into square holes, but um, kind of oval pegs into round holes. It's it's not quite right in terms of fit. You know, Congress tries to uh, legislate and create uh, 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 federal laws that can potentially be interpreted and stretched to new technologies. But again, we're talking about decades old laws uh, that could not possibly have foreseen the types of technology we're talking about here. And we've seen this, uh, the same kind of thing happen with the advent of, uh, you know, really the proliferation of digital media, uh, social media platforms, um, the you know, in, in the music industry and, and well, the entertainment industry in general, in terms of file sharing and uh, you know, the, the, the Napster years, uh, music streaming, torrent sites, that kind of thing. It's all an exercise of trying to see how you can fit it into a law that doesn't really quite fit. Um, I, you know, I'm a, I'm slightly, maybe a little less cynical or skeptical in terms of what Congress is doing. There has there's been a lot of talk. I mean, I think I feel like things have, for as slow as they move and are and are continuing to move, they still are moving a little bit faster than they have in the past in terms of, you know, people's concerns over social media uh, and and content being widely available on the internet and a lot of, uh, you know, discussions with uh, with the kind of metas and Googles of the world, but. 
uh, there have been hearings, there are task forces, there's the, people's minds are, are on this. And I think part of that might be because, uh, you know, there's a concern among uh, a lot of people, not just creative individuals, about uh, to what extent and when are the machines going to replace your job? Um, and so when people are personally invested in in the uh, the outcome of trying to get protective legislation or guardrails out there, uh, they tend to move a little bit faster. All right. Well, Scott Schroeder, thank you very much. And James Samataro at Prior Cashman in Miami, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You are someone who represents uh, and has worked with many in the music industry. And what's notable here about the music industry is is the lack of lawsuits so far. Um, but yet the industry has taken action with regard to generative AI. So so talk about that and 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 some of the, the differences from, from text-based uh, works. Yeah, so I think the where the music industry differs from literary works in particular is it may be able to actually sidestep some of the kind of more complicated copyright issues that are at issue or how our intellectual property law is going to be applied to AI-generated works as a whole. So where the music industry really benefits and differs is it can rely upon a state-level publicity laws. So it's not an ideal solution. So just for to take one step back for everyone, there about half the states in the country have right of publicity statutes. So there's a statutory right to protect one's name and likeness. And just from a historical perspective, you know, the right of publicity was really unlocked in 1953, and it's it was born from the right of privacy. And the court effectively then realized that really what we're not talking about so much is a right of privacy, but really instead the right of publicity, which is the other side of the coin. And what it is, is we want to give individuals, namely celebrities, those with particular attributes, the right to benefit, to commercially exploit, and to protect their unique attributes. So again, state law system, different states protect different things. Not all of them protect voice. But what you're seeing, so kind of the the seminal moment here for, for the music industry of recent times was the fake Drake song that dropped in April of this year. So for those who don't know, there's a song that came out, it was released on TikTok by Ghostwriter77, I believe it was the name, unidentified user who actually just recently did it, recently as in yesterday, uh, did an article with Billboard. But he releases a song on called Heart on My Sleeve, which use AI voice filters to generate a duet between Drake and the artist weekend, both of them who are signed to Universal. The song was an immediate success. It had something like millions of uh, streams within hours, and ultimately it was taken down. And some questions as to whether or not it should have been taken down. One misstep by by Ghostwriter seventy seven. Uh, I guess it was Ghostwriter nine seventy seven. One misstep was that the song actually did embed. Uh, a sample of a well-known, it was like a tag from a well-known producer called Metro Boom. So that actually gave it some credence that it could be taken down through just a DCMA notice. But lots of questions as to whether or not that impact was a copyright infringement. But really what there is no question about is that depending on the state, it's protected by a right of publicity. And we're really at heart, what you're doing is you're taking a song that use again, a voice filter of Drake and The Weeknd and imitated their voice with shocking precision, so much so that there was a disbelief that that actually wasn't a real song, hence the why it became known as the fake Drake song. So for, and 
we were talking about how the law, you know, is always kind of catching up to technology, which has been the case since the invention of the Gutenberg Press. But one of the interesting things is sometimes you have these weird decisions that don't seem all that significant or seminal at the time, and they later become the important bedrock. So within the music business where most eyes are, so there's certainly there's certainly a keen eye watching these literary cases, particularly uh, the copying mechanism, which is if you're using copyright material to train your AI, is that going to be infringement? Is that a fair use? That's a very open issue, very complicated, very nuanced, as Scott said. Um, that's certainly going to impact the music business, and the labels have already indicated uh, that they want some accountability. They want some visibility. There are certain laws that they're suggesting that are rules that are suggesting that, they, that Congress imposed. And you mentioned that the music industry has so far laid back as far as lawsuits go, but you're worried that uh, some some particular case may wind up with a bad decision for the industry. How would it handle that if something like yeah. that should happen? Well, there's always the concern of, of of a bad decision. So I would say you know, the the music industry. I think what you've seen is a couple of responses. So, you know, we had a Hollywood strike where people are, are worried about losing their jobs from the artist's perspective. They're, they're really worried about losing their voice. Right. Uh, both li literally and figuratively, they're worried about losing a voice. The record labels, for their part, have been somewhat aggressive in, in issuing takedown notices. Certainly, there were takedown notices that were issued with respect to the fake Drake card in my sleeve song. There have been other notable songs, by the way, which have caused a similar ruckus, not quite at the same level, but there was a, a Travis Scott song that turned out not to be a Travis Scott song. There was also a 21 Savage song. So there has been the takedown mechanisms. There's a very watchful eye, but there's also, as I mentioned before, there's been a petitioning to Congress. And really, if the, the record label's perspective while watching and seeing how things unfold is they would like three things at their core that they would they would hope to get outside of a judicial setting and maybe from a legislative setting. One would be a nationwide right of publicity law, which would protect voices in, in all 50 states. As I mentioned, it's very fragmented. There's some gerrymandering. There's some form, so there's some form uh, venue choice uh, gaming that one can do depending on the particular statute. So number one, nationwide federal right of publicity law. Two, is that they would like the ability of the copyright owners to see what material has gone into the AI training models. So they would like to know exactly are, if, when you created a fake Drake song, did you go through a Drake catalog? Did you use every one of Drake's songs to come up with that sound, to come up with that imitation or that, vo that voice alike? And then a third is they want the labeling of AI-generated content. And some of that gets to cons uh, consumer confusion. Some of it gets down to just protecting the, you know, the, the artist's uh, persona, the most important and identifying component of the artist in many, in many aspects. All right. Well, James Samataro, thank you very much for that. I, I yeah. want to move on to, thank you. I want to move on to, to Matt Asbill in New York City. Matt, welcome back. And and uh, we're talking here about uh, various uh, suits, uh, the ones that have gotten uh, the most attention are the suits like the Authors Guild case, uh, I'm calling it the Authors Guild case for brevity, that Scott Shoulder uh, is a part of. But there is another case that's quite important to, to all of this, which is the, the Thaler case, um, which uh, was a, a lawsuit brought against the Copyright Office itself. And it gets down to what, in fact, does copyright protect? And uh, the Copyright Office says that um, anything that is created by uh, an AI technology cannot be copyrighted. And uh, I understood you had some some thoughts about what, what the importance of this is uh, and the challenges that may result. The Copyright Office has been, uh, you know, educating the public, reaching out to stakeholders, 
and uh, and there's been interest for a long time in in machine generated uh, content and what would be protectable. And you sort of alluded a little bit earlier to thin versus thick uh, copyrights. I know in the context of photography, uh, this concept of thin copyright had come had come out, you know, because the photographer you know doesn't always create everything that's in the in the photograph, right? How how is it all laid out? There's the there's the lighting. There's only so much that 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 goes into it. But another aspect of what a photographer does, as 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 a good analogy to the generative AI uh, world, is that they use a tool that is not a human tool, and um, and they have some control over that tool, depending on you know um, depending on the the tool itself. But uh, but it's variable that that control, and. Um, and what they ultimately produce, they own the copyright to. So this tool, this machine, this camera, um, you know, no one's saying that the camera owns the photograph. Um, we say that the photographer owns the, owns the copyright in the photograph. But they use this tool. And generative AI is, is you know, at least at its essence, looked at that in that way. Where we start to get into trouble is we start to say, oh, well, actually, the computer is the author. The Copyright Office does not want to and has not recognized when you know anything other than a human has created the work. But they do recognize that a tool can be used to create the work, and they're trying to arrive at um, what level of control over that tool the human must have for them to be an author for the work to be copyrightable. And the platforms that utilize the DMCA, the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, exists as a protection for internet service providers, for platforms, so that they can avoid secondary liability because they have a system on their website to, uh, you know, to take down infringements relatively quickly. It's a very powerful and useful tool they often will rely upon these copyright registrations. So if people can obtain a copyright registration and they can do that even for an AI-generated content, whether they should or shouldn't have been able to, um, then there will be assertions uh, under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act on these platforms asking things to be taken down. And the internet service providers, the platform providers that have these that have this content posted Will be in a more difficult position to judge what they what should they do when do they take it down um, should you know is there some pushback that should be made on the per, on the party asserting their copyright to find out uh, whether they really are entitled to that copyright registration and whether they really should have to take down that content. Right, and and you pointed out uh, when we chatted about this earlier, Matt, that uh, there's really no mechanism should should uh, that assertion be be uh, be accepted because uh, up to now you applied for copyright, you got it. Uh, it's been rarely in- invalidated. There is no process for doing so, really. Yeah, I mean the the process would really be in the in the courts, right? That the if you look in the uh, in, in sort of the analogous offices that that is the Patent and Trademark Office as an example. The trademark office has an has a mechanism to invalidate uh, or or even disallow an, an application from proceeding to registration. It's now, re- more recently, the patent office does as well. The patent office, the patent side of the patent office does as well. Um, and the copyright office, uh, you know, has this sort of isolated registration 
process, there is pushback. I wouldn't say that you file for a copyright and you just get it. Uh, I've experienced certainly on behalf of a number of clients, things that I thought I thought were perfectly copyrightable that the copyright office begged to differ. And I've had those fights. Um, but, um, but there's not so much pushback and there's not so much collection of information. And the platform the copyright office uses is not so transparent that we as lawyers looking into those cases don't readily have online access to all the details of what was filed and what was said in order to decide that, hey, actually, I think this shouldn't have been have made it through and I'm going to challenge it. So I, I think there's a, a long way to go for, for from a copyright office perspective. Um, and then how the DMCA will apply in the context of these sort of improperly granted copyrights, assuming they are improperly granted, since it's left up to the internet service providers to evaluate, it's a matter of their, I guess, their risk tolerance. So they want to be on the receiving end of a, of a secondary liability claim. Uh, maybe they'll just err on the side of accepting that, well, it's registered. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to question that unless the, uh, the defendant, uh, the, the party who posted the content, uh, has some ability to assert that, you know, this was AI generated and is not entitled to registration. Well, well, I mean, I think uh, I would happy to, I'd be happy to hear what you thought about fair use because I think the the, the concern for lawyers like yourself is it's just very unpredictable. Fair use is a case by case basis, as I understand it. I'm not an attorney, but I hear about this a lot at Copyright Clearance Center, and it's up to the judge to decide based on the four factors. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think it has been unpredictable in the past, and uh, and. Uh, it's it was already troublesome for uh for people who were planning to use a work to um to, to really know and feel confident that they could safely use it and i think you found uh I, I think scott alluded to um maybe it was scott or james alluded to napster and grokster and and in those days um you know in a lot of those types of cases where the law didn't perfectly apply to the technology the technology that people who developed that technology were relying on their understanding of the law at the time, you know, thinking that they were in the clear. We've had that uh, happen pretty recently in a in a trademark infringement case regarding non-fungible tokens, um, you know, where the Metaburkins case, where very similarly, like the defendant kind of knew the state of the law. There were all these cases that were previously found to be fair uses, and they should be okay if they if they operate on you know within these particular confines. But I think even less so today than 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 a year ago or a few years ago. Is there any certainty as to what is a fair use? Uh, what is a fair use under copyright, and what is a fair use under under trademark law? People are um, at a loss, which makes them. I mean, I guess it's good they come to us. Um, but our ability to opine on it is, is, is really difficult. There's a lot of, well, there's this side and this factor, but then there's this side and this factor. And in the end, it's, oh, it could go either way. Maybe the best thing to do is don't ask for permission and we'll just find out. Or the best thing to do is not do it, um, which I think is a real struggle for uh, those who are, who are creating uh, or, or, or using existing content in what they create. 
Right. Well, well, managed, well, thank you very much. And, and Pamela Samuelson at uh, Pamela Samuelson, excuse me, at the Berkeley Center for, for Law and Technology. I want to pick up on that because fair use really is a very important point with you and, and your own thoughts on these particular cases. And as I understand it, uh, based on precedents in law, you think the defendants in many of these uh, AI AI training cases have a pretty good chance of of, of uh, find, finding sympathetic judges to to their claims of fair use. Tell us about that. So can I can I uh, make two really quick points about things that that Matt said that I think that would be helpful to people in the audience. Uh, I, I promise to get back to your question because um, uh, it's the one I'm most interested in. But the Copyright Office now requires that when you register something that has AI-generated stuff in it, that you basically have to disclose that and you have to disclaim authorship. Um, and that's actually going to be a very tricky thing uh, for them. Uh, a second point that I wanted to make uh, is that the Copyright Office has canceled registrations when they find out that something's AI generated that they didn't know. So Chris Kostanova, um, uh made Zarya of the Dawn, uh, a, a kind of comic book kind, uh, story, um, and um, didn't reveal that Midjourney was the, the way that she generated the images. Uh, and uh, But the, somebody in the copyright office saw on social media that she had used Midjourney and gotten a copyright certificate. So then they went back and they canceled it. Uh, so you know, if the Copyright Office cancels your registration, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of nuance that people are going to have to do. Now, you know, there's been an effort to say, hey, but I, I used all these different prompts and therefore I had control over it. And uh, at least the most recent of those cases, um, uh, the, I think his name, J Jason Allen, uh, made this image, uh, won a, a prize, uh, and he still couldn't get a registration of it, um, even though he said, I had, I used 93 prompts to, to do it. And, you know, copyright office said, nope, and uh, doesn't work for me. Um, so that's actually something that, that if you don't disclose it and they find out, um, you're, you know, you will have committed fraud on the copyright office, I think. And that's actually going to be something, uh, that boy, there's, I, there's going to be a lot of tussle on that particular issue. So let me just sort of, um, just, uh, compliment, uh, what, uh, uh, what Matt was saying, uh, about the copyrightability issues. Pam Samuelson, tell us about um, uh, you know your views on fair use here and, and why you think many of these cases are going to be found in, in favor of the defendants. So again, uh, case by case, um, these are the, this presents some novel issues, uh, but certainly the um, the uh, the defendants will be looking uh, and relying pretty heavily on the on the Google Books cases, right? So the Authors Guild v. Uh, Google and the um, Authors Guild versus HathiTrust case are Second Circuit Court of Appeals decisions. And the Second Circuit decisions on copyright issues tend to get a lot of, uh, tend to get a lot of deference. Um, and in both of those cases, uh, the copying of millions of in-copyright materials uh, for the purpose of uh, essentially engaging in computational uses uh, was uh, held to be fair use. Um, and one of the reasons why um, uh, in the high trust case is that, you know, 
you could use the HathiTrust digital library to search across um, uh, millions of books to find out which books actually mention this particular historical figure or this particular historical incident. You couldn't get any expression from the books. You could only say, here's the book, here's the page on which the uh, that particular person is discussed. Uh, and then you could go to the physical library and actually check out the book. Uh, and, uh, and that was actually helpful. So I think that because the uh, because the generative AI software um, is separate from the training data, um, so it's a distinct objects, right? So the, the software basically uh, doesn't embody the expression in these works in a way that, um, uh, that we would recognize. Um, uh, rather, the training uh, essentially disassembles uh, them into component parts, and then those component parts are basically... Um, uh, identified through numbers and then uh, essentially used uh, to predict some outcome. But um, unless the outcome, uh, unless the output is got some in, some expression from this particular input, um, uh, it's hard to say that there's any derivative work created. Uh, and there's also, it's hard to say that there's actually um, uh, any harm to the market for the original work uh, because the original works expression isn't in isn't embodied in the model in the way that copyright law uh, has cared about. So I think those are the two cases that will um, that that will be relied on, um, and uh, those are cases that um, uh, will be very relevant to the ingestion claims. And uh, another case that that uh, we should bring up briefly is the Betamax case, uh, which, uh, as you told me, sort of for, for the industry, losing that case turned out to be a good thing. And it may be a lesson for us in all of this. Explain that. So Universal City Studios and uh, Disney brought a lawsuit against Sony for selling these technologies that allow people to make copies of uh, television programs. Um, and they claimed grievous losses, enormous losses uh, as a result of uh, of that, um, and even time shifting. Uh, no, people can't time shift um, uh, without get, me getting some money. Uh, and so uh, they actually asked for, um, uh, as a, a remedy, they wanted uh, Sony to have to essentially recall all 5 million uh, households with uh, Betamax machines, and they wanted to disembowel the, the machines so that uh, they could no longer be used to make copies of television programs. It's like, um, well, it turns out that, um, uh, that because of the installed base of 5 million at the time of the oral argument, uh, 5 million uh, households had these machines. It turns out that then there was an installed base of people who wanted to uh, watch movies and watch uh, programs. Uh, and the, the, the entertainment industry really benefited tremendously by the market for DVDs, uh, for Blu-rays and so forth. Uh, so um, uh, I forget exactly how many billions or trillions that they, they made from these things, but it turned out pretty good. Uh, now. And, and, right. And, and the point is that that, that new technologies uh, may have some infringing uses, but uh, they have many others that are not infringing. And, and that's actually, an important consideration. I think that also the, there will probably be 
um, some Sony Betamax defenses uh, to uh, these some of these claims uh, because um, let's say I'm a user and I want to infringe copyright. And so I use, uh, I put in some prompts and I, I get out something that's like Snoopy or Superman or Mickey Mouse or some other kind of character. Um, and that that's an infringement. Well, I may have been the infringer, but did, uh, the, did the sort of maker of the generative AI system, um, uh, intend for that to be uh, something that could be done? Probably not. Um, and so if the technology has substantial non-infringing uses, um, and that's certainly going to be what the generative AI companies are going to argue, then um, they may not be contributorily or vicariously liable, uh, uh, even if the, uh, uh, you know, the dedicated user who wanted to infringe was able to do that. Pam, if if the cases go the way you say they will, which is uh, for the uh, uh, defendants to to uh, to be able to use their fair use uh, case uh, or sorry their fair use defense su- successfully in these cases, are jobs at risk? So one of the questions that the courts are going to have to confront is whether copyright law is a jobs program, and I don't think it is. Um, and you know, the um, Goldman Sachs has uh, predicted that uh, 300 million jobs could be displaced by generative AI. Um, the ones that are most risk uh, are, are office workers, administrators, uh, lawyers, engineers, and architects, um, according to Goldman Sachs. Uh, and so uh, it may be that we're going to have to figure out as a society uh, what we do to keep people meaningfully employed. Now, Goldman Sachs also predicts uh, that generative AI will open up new opportunities and new, uh, so it will be offset. And it's certainly the case that in the past, um, you, you introduce a uh, disruptive technology, it's going to have some impacts. Um, John Philip Sousa actually was against uh, recorded music uh, because he thought it would um, main, mean that people wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't play music anymore and it would like totally change and ruin our society because people wouldn't be playing uh, music together. They just listened to this recording um, and it was all mechanical and it was terrible. Um, and, you know, it turns out that recorded music turns out to be actually a pretty cool thing um, and uh, lots of creativity in the area. So uh, again, many, many interesting questions uh, for the courts uh, to uh, to opine on. And thanks, Chris, so much for uh, organizing such a good session. Well, I enjoyed it very much. I want to thank everybody involved. Uh, Matt Asbell with Offit Kerman in New York City, James Amataro with Prior Cashman in Miami, Pam Samuelson at uh, the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology at Berkeley University, and Scott Shoulder, partnered with Cowan Debates, Abrahams, and Shepard in New York. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you, Victor Howard, uh, sorry, Harwood, for the invitation to participate in this digital Hollywood panel. I'm Christopher Keneally, host of the Velocity of Content podcast from Copyright Clearance Center. That's all for now. Mm-hmm.